In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing the show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my queue. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have some exciting topics. Of course, we will be starting off by talking about some COVID updates, uh, but then we'll get into a more theoretical discussion about the neutrality bias. Um, and then we'll round out our conversations today talking about um, new allegations on, in the Biden campaign and uh, the path forward for that team and the Democratic nominee. Yep. Hey, Michael, remember when we used to get really annoyed when we would have to talk about impeachment? And every time yeah. we were about to talk about impeachment, we were like, God, I just want this to be over. I yeah. hate talking about this. Don't you miss those days? Yeah, I really <laughs> do. Like, yeah, before the pandemic, when we could go outside after uh, talking about impeachment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's but like honestly... We had a criminal in the White House who was about to get away with it, but at least we could go to the grocery store without covering our face and staying yeah. a country's worth away from everybody you see. <laughs> exactly. But first of all, Nathan, let's check in. How are you doing these days? You okay? Uh, I'm getting through it. Uh, I am about to finish up my community college classes after this week so that will make my schedule a little bit easier for a bit and uh it does look like i'm going to be picking up um a summer class so that's going to really help me over the summer um so yeah i've been able to stay busy and i've been feeling very fortunate because of that uh what about you michael i am doing pretty well i uh work has been absolutely insane which in combination with the fact that i am never like able to leave my house really um, it's not a great combination. It, it had me in a pretty bad funk for a couple of weeks, but I'm starting to come out of it. Um, and you know, at least I'm healthy. I'm sitting here, yeah. you know, with my, um, you know, UV light, you know, going into my skin. I've got my warm <laughs> cup of bleach, um, and <laughs> just trying to stay healthy. <laughs> You know, I've been trying to get myself one of those UV lights, and yeah. I've been feeling a tickle in my throat, so I, mm -hmm. it's really urgent at this point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll just gargle with some bleach, yeah, um, and then exactly. if you have any needles sitting or like syringes sitting around the house, just like, you know, go intravenous. Yeah, actually, so I don't have any syringes, but I was thinking I could just take a needle and try mm -hmm. to use it to like cut a hole in my gut and That's then just pour the Lysol up my chest cavity. Sure. You know, just direct. Sure. That's the most direct way of doing it. Yeah. Maybe use a sponge on my lungs, you know, to directly That's a good wipe idea. it. Yeah. You want it. Cause the point is that the virus just can't stand up to a disinfectant. So exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, if it works listeners... on a countertop, if it works on a countertop, it must work. Exactly. Directly with the lungs. Yeah. <laughs> with no side effects. Um, I don't think any of our listeners are the group of people that are calling into the CDC and asking if they should be drinking bleach. But in case there are, we are uh, kidding. Do not do not do that. <laughs> don't do Listen any to of the us, stuff we just said. Not our president, and don't uh, inject yourself or drink bleach. Do not try to disinfect your body. <laughs> yeah, soap on the outside of the skin will be fine. <laughs> yeah. So in case you've been living under a rock for the uh, last week, 
You may have heard that our president has come up with a new miracle cure for COVID-19. During a press conference, he said, quote, So supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light, and I think you said that hasn't been checked because of the testing. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, which you can do either through the skin or some other way, I think you said you're going to test that too. I see the disinfectant that knocks it out in a minute. One minute, and there is a way we can do something like that by injection inside, or almost a cleaning. As you see, it gets in the lungs. It does a tremendous number on the lungs, so it would be interesting to check that. God, is that he, was hard to read. He's just so dumb. It's like, yeah. what are you talking about? So in, in case it was hard for you to understand what he was saying, because I, I mean, that level of grammatical challenge would make my high school English teacher have a heart attack. So he is suggesting that you can shine ultraviolet lights inside your body in order to take care of the virus, and you could even potentially inject disinfectant in your lungs in order to take care of the virus. Now, he was saying this to his doctors who were in the room. He wasn't saying it to the reporters. He was asking it to the doctors. And you can watch the video. He was clearly doing that. And then later, when he was universally called out for saying this, he was like, oh, he was sarcastic. It was totally sarcasm. And he, and he claimed that he was responding to a question that the reporters had asked with sarcasm. When in the video, he was saying it to the doctors. So once again, this is what we call political gaslighting. What you're seeing and what you're hearing is not what's happening. And what's ridiculous about this and what is awful about this is that this actually has an effect. There are actually people that tune in to these press conferences to try to get advice from the president of the United States, who should be a reliable source of information. And they hear him suggest stupid crap like this. And then they start calling the CDC and poison control to ask if this is a way that you can treat the virus. In fact, Governor Larry Hogan, a Republican, I might add, in Maryland, the Republican governor of Maryland, was in an interview on ABC News in which he said, quote, when misinformation comes out or you just say something that pops in your head, it does send the wrong message. And we have hundreds of calls coming to our emergency hotline at our health department asking if it was right to ingest Clorox or, you know, alcohol cleaning products, whether it was going to help them fight the virus. There has been an uptick of people calling the health department to ask if you should ingest Clorox to fight the virus. And it's not just, so it's not just like the risk to people who actually might ingest 
like harmful chemicals. Like that's obviously terrible and we want to avoid that. And like that is a serious, serious problem that the president of the United States is sending that message, even inadvertently, if that if that is the case, even sarcastically. Why would you be sarcastic? Like best case scenario, his words are that he was being sarcastic on the national stage doing a press briefing about a pandemic. Like what the heck? Which but he wasn't. And if he was, yeah. <laughs> he is he is worse at sarcasm than I am. And I'm autistic. <laughs> but the but like the great the much larger implication is that like when you when you send these bad like poor messages, when you misinform the public, people t- like take irresponsible actions. They fail to take the actions they should take and they take actions that they shouldn't. And that has a serious impact. Like we we've talked about at this show early on um, the fact that because Republicans and viewers of Fox News were getting a diluted version of the truth about the, the risk and danger of this disease, we, we predicted that they would have um, a higher incidence of mortality and infection because they wouldn't be taking the precautions that viewers of better informing news networks would. And it, in fact, we've seen that happen. The facts have supported that. Yeah. And... This is an important case where we need to clarify we do not take any pleasure in being right about this. In fact, all the times that we have been right when we have made predictions about the effect on the United States certain responses are going to have, we have been right and we have not been happy about that. Yeah. Because each time we have predicted catastrophe and that has been the case. Look, I have actually been seeing a few of my Democrat friends on Facebook saying things like, oh, you know, these Trump supporters, they're more of them are dying and yeah. like, ha, serves That's them good right. Th- yeah. No, no. I don't care how stupid they are. They don't deserve to die. Yeah. I don't care if they do something bad. They don't deserve to die. Yeah. I don't none, want people to die. None of the advocacy we do supports any people dying like like we're not talking about no. medicare for all <laughs> for just democrats yeah like, exactly medicare for all republicans too <laughs> yeah a study came out from the university of chicago's becker friedman institute for economics which demonstrated that among fox news viewers people that showed a greater viewership of sean hannity who if you will remember early in the pandemic downplayed it and even called it a hoax and then pretended he never said that, relative to Tucker Carlson. Now, I'm no fan of Tucker Carlson. I think uh, he he promotes a lot of white nationalist ideology. I think he's a terrible person. But early in this virus, he was not one of the people in Fox News that were downplaying it. He was warning people that this could be bad. It compared the viewership of those two shows, and they found that the people who watched Sean Hannity were significantly less likely to change behaviors in order to uh, protect themselves from the virus. And as a result, there is a higher amount of deaths concentrated in areas with high Sean Hannity viewership versus areas of high Tucker Carlson viewership. For example, in comparing areas with a meaningful viewership difference on March 14th, they found that approximately 30% more cases 
of people contracting the disease in Sean Hannity favoring areas versus Carlson favoring areas. So misinforming your audience in order to protect the ego of the president resulted in more people dying. Yeah. And the sad thing is we predicted that. And that is terrible because regardless of who you watch, regardless of who you go to for your news, you don't deserve to die because that you made a bad choice in that. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, disinformation or misinformation is still coming out of the white house is crazy and yeah. super problematic. Interestingly, Trump's staff seems to be finally catching on that he might not be too great at this daily press news briefing coronavirus response because um, a few of them have, have come out and actually his advisors have, have recommended that he do fewer briefings, either having shorter briefings daily or, or moving to a less than daily cadence because they, they've referred to it as um, him being overexposed. And that, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I and do that, not want to picture that. <laughs> yeah, they, they've um, indicated that, like, when he's on TV too much, you know, he's he's he doesn't do himself any favors. We can't let him speak too much because he's such a dumb ass that <laughs> he gets he gets in his own way. And that's had like that's potentially going to have larger implications in the lead up to the 2020 election. So like, needless to say, coronavirus has changed everything about the general election of 2020. So, you know, it's not just for Democrats where we had, you know, Bernie uh, dropping out of the primary um, earlier than he, he might have otherwise. Um, like the most recent thing in people's minds as they head into the election is going to be, you know, Trump's response to this economic and health crisis. Um, so in a lot of ways, like some an analysts are, are um, discussing this as like Trump running against the virus rather than running against a Democrat, because, <laughs> you know, as he is, as he's, he's doing his normal Trump things, it's becoming clearer and clearer how problematic those things are. Um, and it shouldn't have taken a global pandemic to figure that out. And it sucks that it did. Yeah. But a lot of people do seem to finally start to realize that when you have this level of idiocy in the White House, it actually has effects. Yeah. It's not just like it makes you feel uncomfortable. It's not just that you're annoyed by hearing it. It actually has an impact. Yeah, exactly. Because like all the crazy stuff he does, like maybe it works when you're when your opponent or the people you're trying to work against are people, because you know maybe it throws them off balance. It's like make it it might there might be arguments for ways that it could be helpful. It definitely doesn't work against a virus. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just it's going to keep on pushing and coming. And unless you have actual real plans with like real force in the world that that are thought through. Um, it's not going to make a difference. And so things like tweeting policy really late at night, it was, you know, a problem, but not, there weren't like immediate, you know, precise negative effects right away. Um, but now it's got actually real tangible consequences and like making crazy uninformed off the wall remarks um, was always a bad thing, but now it has people calling the CDC to see if they should drink bleach. So like 
all of a sudden you're seeing that it's not this like master plan. He's not this, you know, feather footed boxer in the ring, just like both strategic and you can never get a hand on him. It's really that he is totally scatterbrained and off the wall and like completely unable to put together like cohesive thoughts. And that again may have worked when he was like confusing his negotiating opponents, but it's really not working against the virus. Yeah. Yeah. I've also been seeing this argument by uh, people that were defending, that are defending Trump where they're basically saying, um, come on, this isn't a big deal. You really think that his supporters are dumb enough to actually inject bleach to which my response is one, um, whether his supporters are dumb enough to do it or not, apparently he's dumb enough to do it. <laughs> so if he's dumb enough to do it, you probably shouldn't support him. And number two, I mean, you did vote for him. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But the, but one of the so so this is getting like this is getting a lot of Republicans nervous about this because you know when he when Trump was originally bumbling his response. Um, around like mid-March, his approval ratings kind of dropped from about 43% to a 42%. So only like a 1% tick. Um, and then they kind of ticked up while he was rolling out plans and discussing stuff and the stimulus package went out and they topped out around the end of March at like 46% approve. Um, but since then, they've dropped back down to 43% approve with 53% disapprove. And this is like, this is well below the approval rates of Obama and Clinton and even Bush um, at the end of their first term leading in their second term. So it's got some Republicans nervous, but the cl classic Trump campaign is like trying to force solidarity. Um, so, so he, one of his top um, aides, Rick Gorka um, said on, on his behalf, quote, the president has record support amongst Republicans. So I would remind candidates that they need the president's supporters they need his voters to show up for them in the polls. And to be perfectly blunt, if the president is going to win, you have a good chance of winning. If you're going to try to break with the president and thread a needle, good luck with that. So it's like the classic Republican electoral strategy of tie everybody together in this big group so that if you're gonna, if you feel like you don't want to vote for one of them, you gotta basically reject all of them and then you're stuck with a Democrat. So it's trying to like cohese the base. But ultimately, I think that's going to be pushing more of like the fringe voters over to the Democrat side because yeah. they're going to like be realizing how deficient this group is as the as the virus is putting things in such stark relief. Yeah, I remember back in the 2016 election, uh, I was making the argument with a lot of my more conservative friends that at this point, the best thing for Republicans would have been if he had lost 2016 by a landslide mm. because they don't want that gunk in their party. Yeah. Because what is happening right now is they're getting into a situation in which the passionate base of Trump supporters will be with him no matter what. He really could shoot someone and mm -hmm. they would stay with him. Yeah. But... As long as he said he shot them sarcastically. Yeah. But <laughs> there... <laughs> And there are, in fact, a large amount of people that are kind of more on-the-fence voters that are disgusted by that, that wouldn't want to vote for Trump or wouldn't want to vote with a Republican who is like Trump. 
But if a Republican embraces Trump, they lose those supporters. But if they don't embrace Trump, they lose Trump's base, which puts them in this impossible position where they're fighting against different sections of the electorate. Yeah. Yeah, it it seems like a really challenging position. I, I... Do not envy the Republicans for having to be there, but like they they dug themselves into this hole. Anecdotally, I have just from speaking to Trump supporters that I know, a lot of them point to like it's not that they think that he can do no wrong, it's that they haven't seen enough evidence to think that he has done something wrong. But I think that as his deficient leadership is becoming clearer and clearer. The evidence is just becoming clearer and clearer. And so like, you know, it's, it, it is not that difficult to spin complicated stories and complicated um, issues such that it looks like, you know, you can both sides it. Oh, well, the Democrats would have messed up um, in their, you know, in, in the, uh, it, with Ukraine as well. And all, all that stuff, you can like both sides, those issues. I think this is so clear that it's being poorly run and mismanaged. And as, as like, as the death toll rises, as the economic impact increases, I think like it's going to be one of those situations where it's just impossible to look away. And so I think the, the people that are, are not insane are going to be faced with this challenging decision and, and who knows what decision they'll make at the time. One other thing that we wanted to talk about, with regards to the coronavirus, is the protests. So right now, there have been a large amount of widespread protests from people that are not happy with the stay-at-home orders. And we've talked a little bit about this. We talked a little bit about the threshold for government involvement, where because people are facing the issue of, if I go out then I could hurt other people. The government really does fit with even the most libertarian standards of the threshold for for government involvement. So with that in mind, we want to talk a little bit about how disappointing it's been that the protests have really shifted the Overton window to the point where while people might recognize that people are dying from coronavirus. There are people that just don't care. Mm -hmm. It is within the Overton window right now that if a few million people have to die in order to save the economy, it's a small price to pay. Mm -hmm. And, And before we get into that, there is one clarification I would like to make. A majority of voters still support the quarantine. In fact, Morning Consult and Politico did a survey, and they found that 74% of voters do support the quarantine, and only 19% of voters oppose it. So overall, that's a huge majority. That's a huge win. But that 19% has been really loud. Yeah. And not not only doing harm in, like, shifting the Overton window by being loud. If 19% of the population is not, is like ignoring the stay at home orders and like not social distancing, that's a huge health problem as well. Like, you know, we need as many people as possible to take this seriously. 
Um, and yeah, having having seventy plus percent support is makes it a hugely popular issue. Like, like you know, it makes it like really well supported. But unfortunately, you know, this virus doesn't operate on a majority rule. You know, yeah. it's not going to go away when fifty one percent of us decide that it should. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So like shifting that window can be really dangerous. Yeah. And it is really insane just to think about what that says about American culture, that mm-hmm. we seriously do believe that the commodities, the economic outcome, is more important than people's lives. I mean, ultimately, I I was hoping that it was kind of a universally accepted idea that the most valuable commodity is human life. But under our kind of twisted version of laissez-faire capitalism, which is in a lot of ways more corporate oligarchy, that's not the case. Yeah. And I mean, it's not the the issue is that, or one of the issues I should say is, is not just that like a bunch of corporate overlords are trying to convince us that we should get back into the economy. It's partially because like human brains are not set up to care about people at a large scale as much as they are to care about the people around them. So like, you know, until they start seeing it impact their neighbors, a lot of people won't really take this fully seriously. Um, which as we've talked about in the past, past, the math says that once you get to that point, it's, it's too late and you should have acted earlier. Um, but you know, like multiple studies have, have, analyze the question of like how much a human life is worth and like in aggregate at like a a distance it comes out to about ten thousand dollars like if you anal if you set up different questions to be like well how much would you give up in order to save a random stranger's life and things like that it comes it it uh comes out uh, out to around ten thousand dollars now now it varies a tremendous amount like some studies have a million some studies cite other things um but like I think one of the major issues is that we're not really used to thinking about human life that way, but that is the implicit calculus that people are making when they're trying to make this decision. And what we've the point we've emphasized again and again on the podcast is that where the place that we have to strive to get to is a place where we can where we can dissolve that dichotomy and make it a false one, where we can make it so the decision doesn't have to be between the economy and death. Um, and that, and that it has everything to do with how we structure our response. Because right now, it truly, the, the one decision we have is, you know, restart the economy and more people will die or keep the economy like in its downward trajectory and more people will live. And we just have to make that relationship less clear. Um, because because we don't have a good way of making this kind of decision, and then it ends up left, being left up to protesters and people that are like that don't care very much about their neighbors. And look, Michael and I understand how the world works for the most part. Um, we understand that the economy does have an impact on people's lives, and we're not pretending that it doesn't. In a lot of ways, the economy does help to keep people living. It helps provide for food. It helps provide for the basic needs that people have. And we're not denying that it doesn't. However, the shift 
to the idea that the purpose of humans is to serve the economy rather than the other way around is not a good place to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and as we've talked about before, like any way that we can help offset those negative consequences of the economic downturn, we should take. Yeah. You know, like we there is a path that we can try to structure that allows us to um help dampen those economic down like downsides while keeping people alive. But on the subject of keeping people alive, we'll just do a quick update on the numbers. So this week, when we're coming to you, there are worldwide 3.1 million cases, um, which is 600,000 more than there were last week when we talked to you. Talked to you. There are 950,000 recovered people, which is about 300,000 more than last week, and 215,000 deaths, which is about 45,000 more than last week. In the U.S. specifically, um, we've had about a million total cases. We've we've broken the million mark. Um, that's like as of that's a about a third ago. of all pop of all about cases. all cases exactly. So, imagine, <clears throat> just think about that: a third of all cases in the world are in the United States. So that's a third of all cases, with only about five percent of the world's population. That is unacceptable. Yeah. And that, that million cases is about 210,000 more than last week. I got to tell you, I'm tired of winning. <laughs> Me too, man. We've got, as well, this week, this most recent update, we've got 59,000 deaths, which is 16,000 more than last week, meaning that if death stopped right now, COVID would be the ninth leading cause of death in the United States. It jumped three spots since last week. And now time for one of our more positive segments, Tips for Good. So, Michael, why do we do Tips for Good every week? So we do Tips for Good to bring you a fact or something you can keep in mind or behavior you can exercise um, that if you brought into your everyday life would make the world a little bit of a better place. So, Nathan, what's our Tip for Good this week? Our tip for good this week is to fact check before you share. Ah, uh, that's huge. And yes. it, it has a lot of uh, connection to the topics we're talking about today, which are mostly Ooh, about yeah. truth. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I spent a lot of time on social media. Um, well, specifically Facebook. I never really got into Instagram or Twitter or anything else. I, I'm very much an okay millennial. Um <laughs> And I spent a lot of time scrolling through Facebook and I see a lot of non-factual posts from both sides. And you won't hear me say both sides very often, but both sides. Mm -hmm. And that is destructive. Yeah. Like it. And and the thing is when I see a post that I think, huh, that sounds ridiculous. I wonder if that's true. It usually takes me like, less than a minute to fact check it. Mm-hmm. It's not that difficult. So yeah. if you, if there's a post that you see that you want to share because they're expressing some fact that you find like crazy, just quickly fact check it. You know, yeah. go on to PolitiFact or Snopes, just, just, just fact check it before you post it. 
And another important caveat to that, posting something that you don't know is true and then asking, hey, is this true? Don't do that either. <laughs> for one thing, it's really easy for you to just look it up real quick and see if it's true before you post it. And number two, not everybody's going to see that comment. They might just see that post. Mm -hmm. If they're just scrolling through Facebook, they might just see that. Yeah. And look, I'll be honest. I've done that before. I haven't done that in a long time, but I, I, uh, I, I, I've done that before. And it was actually uh, our friend Chris who called me out on it the last time I did it. And I, I really realized, damn, that's, that's not okay. That's, I'm part of the problem. Now, yeah. it turned out that what I shared was accurate and was factual, but you should never share something until you know. Yeah. And you should never share something with the expressed intention of asking other people in the internet, um, hey, is this true? Because if it's not true, you are giving that disinformation or misinformation a share. Yeah. And you don't want to do that. Yeah. And ultimately, like, you can take a little while, a couple minutes to go and fact check. Like, the internet is full of a lot of false information, but it's not that hard to find the, uh, the good stuff. So... Yeah. You know, to Nathan's point, like you can go to a few specific sites. I think I think Wikipedia is really useful. Like people give Wikipedia a bad rap, but it it works pretty well, and they cite everything. Like yeah. if in an article you can go to the footnotes and find their sources, um, and I and I definitely encourage you to do that. Yeah. And so you know, I also am an active user of the save button on on Facebook. So instead of sharing something to like keep track of it or or if you don't have the time to fact check it right then, I'll save an article or save uh, some content to go back later and check it out um, and potentially share it. Yeah. So contribute to a well-vetted, well-fact-checked discourse because, you know, that'll be better for all of us. And that's tips for good. So for our second segment, um, we're going to be bringing a, a more of a theoretical discussion um, or maybe a principled discussion uh, to the pod, and we're going to talk about neutrality bias. So Nathan, why don't you walk us through what exactly neutrality bias is? So something that you have probably come to understand is that the best thing for a journalist to do is to just be neutral, just report on both sides of any issue as if they're both equal. Because if you don't do that, then that demonstrates a level of bias. And if you demonstrate a level of bias towards one side, then one, that gets in the way of you accurately reporting the truth. And two, that can often cause other people to not take you as seriously. But the problem with that is that if we always approach reporting and journalism from the angle that we must report both sides as being equal, then when both sides are not equal, that is its own form of bias in favor of the inferior side. So to give you an example, and this is an extreme example, I, I, will, I will acknowledge that. This is an extreme example, but it still makes the point. Um, back in Nazi Germany, here you go, talking about Nazi Germany again. <laughs> yeah. Back in Nazi Germany, when um, Hitler was arguing for the killing of the Jews, and Jews 
did not want to be killed, you would not be a great journalist if you reported it as, well, I don't know, Nazis want to kill Jews, Jews don't want to be killed. Who's right? Yeah. Yeah, the headline is not uh, Nazis and Jews disagree on death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that actually, that is what we refer to as the middle ground fallacy. So mm-hmm. the middle ground fallacy is a logical fallacy that assumes that the truth, when there are two opposite extreme sides, the truth must lie in the middle. And that's not always the case. Yeah. In fact, the truth is by definition independent of one's view of it. Exactly. So like that's that's the ultimate fundamental challenge here, right? Is that is that we're is that the challenge is in conflating a set of ideas that are not all the same. So one is the truth, which is the fact of the matter, which is independent of your view, which is independent of um, anyone's observance of it. It's, it is a fact of the universe, and no one would ever have had to see it in order for it to be true. And then the other components are your perspectives on that, like on, on your observation of the fact, on um, you know your different... Um, motivations in coming to that fact like there are a lot of other factors that end up clouding the truth of the matter and the truth of the matter or the fact of the matter is a hard thing to get at um and when it's not obvious what exactly that is you may need to you know as a journalist or an individual like buffer yourself you shouldn't be claiming that something is a fact of the matter if you don't know that it is but but defaulting then to saying that one can't know or that all sides' opinions are equally valid is an irresponsible shortcut. Yeah, one thing that I think was a huge failing by the media, say back in the Bush administration, is when a lot of uh, articles and a lot of news outlets were reporting on a lot of the false information that the Bush administration was putting out, about uh, the Iraq war and the weapons of mass destruction. And mind you, this was after the UN report came out that said that there were no weapons of mass destruction. They were reporting it as basically uh, Bush administration says blank Mm -hmm. without presenting more of the facts. That headline should have said Bush administration says blank, which contradicts findings from from the UN. Yeah. Yeah. Or just, the UN says that's not true. Something like that. Yeah. Because as Michael alluded to, the truth of a statement is always independent of who said it. And and we acknowledge that this is difficult. We can't prescribe one fits all solution to this because oftentimes, even if you are reporting the truth, you can still present the facts in a way that favor one side. Mm -hmm. So there could be two articles from two different news outlets that report on the same story that all that both have factual information, but they can be presented in a way in which a person reading one and a person reading another could come to exponentially different conclusions. So we're not saying that bias does not get in the way of truth, but sometimes that push, that strive to forsake any perceptions of bias 
can be just as destructive to the truth as the bias itself. Yeah. Now, Michael and I, we try to be honest about our perceptions, about uh, our biases. You know, we're, we both are fairly progressive. Yeah. We both are fairly far to the left. And we've both had relatively similar, similar life experiences f- compared to the rest of the world. Absolutely. Um, we come from similar areas. Yeah. Um, and that can sometimes, that, those biases can sometimes get in the way of our ability to perceive the truth. We do what we can in order to prevent that from happening, but it can get in the way, and we're not going to pretend that it doesn't. However, if we were to report on a set of facts and just maintain a stance of neutrality no matter what those facts are, that is not objective journalism. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that we're journalists. We're not journalists. But that would not be objective journalism. Yeah, especially because, like, the responsibility, and it is a hard one, of, like, the fourth estate is to go beyond what is apparently and clearly true like go beyond surface level facts and into the deeper facts saying bush says there are weapons of mass destruction is a factually true statement he said it yeah but the point is what's the what is he saying evaluate what he's saying what's the story the story is whether what he's saying is true and that's where you need to go and of course it's incredibly complicated by the fact that by a few things one that there's no like media like there's no like capital m media that exists like there it's not all one concerted effort there's not the illuminati is not like running all the outlets like it's not a monolith and so there's a lot of different components and players two it's complicated by the fact that for the most part there are there are lots of journalists that are just trying to do the best they can to like one do their jobs and two like get through the day and three like report the truth and three, that even though there isn't a media, there are large media companies, and those media companies need viewers, and their incentive is is to have viewers that trust and rely upon them. Note, it is not necessarily to report the truth. It is to be a trusted and relied upon source by a large group of people, because that is how they, you know, have revenue and profits and find success. And so, you know, this is a really complicated and challenging thing and we won't, you know, present a solution today or probably ever. (laughs) If we solve that, we would probably have more than a podcast. Um, (laughs) But, but the reality is that one thing we can do is push journalists away from both sides in an issue and, you know, push them to do the work for us expect that our outlets go and find the truth of the matter as best as they can and in some ways there have been some media outlets that have been doing a better job of this under the uh, trump administration but not all of them and not all the time Mm -hmm. i mean for example reporting what we were talking about earlier where donald trump was suggesting injecting disinfectant into your lungs if a media outlet reported that, even if they said, eh, Trump says this, you know, there's some doctors that also say this, eh, whatever. I don't know who, I don't know who's telling the truth. That would not be objective journalism. 
Yeah. The president is suggesting injecting disinfectant into your lungs, which can kill you. And if you don't take the responsibility to make sure that your audience knows, don't do that. That's bad. That's (laughs) stupid. It will kill you. You are not telling the truth. Yeah. The headline is, do not inject Clorox (laughs) into your veins. Yes. The the lead can be, Trump says that you might want to inject (laughs) it. Do not do it. Yeah. Do not. Yeah. Exactly. Like, that's such an obvious case of, like, the truth isn't and can't be um, simply the mean between two ends. Yeah. Because that means that the fact of the matter is totally dependent on the, the, the range of opinions out there. And yeah. as we know, like just you, all you have to do is spend some time in the YouTube comments section to find the full range of human opinion. And it is wide. <laughs> and also the, full range of human morality (laughs) and it is dark (laughs) so anyway yeah we just wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the neutrality bias just to make you guys aware of it and um you know just to talk a little bit about some of the the theoretical underpinnings of of the incredible responsibility that rests on the shoulders of um journalists in our society um and how difficult that is, but also how important it is. Yeah. The thing I want to leave you all with is remember this. Just because a person or an outlet is biased doesn't mean that they are wrong. Just because a person or an outlet is neutral doesn't mean that they are objective. So now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat of the the Week. So, Nathan, who is our lucky asshat this week? Well, Michael, this week's asshat is a no-brainer. Literally, she has no brain. (laughs) (laughs) This week's asshat is Las Vegas Mayor Carol Goodman. Oh, my gosh. Where to begin? If you guys missed it... we cannot get through interview. this whole thing. Like we're no. we're not going to be able to get through every crazy thing that she said during this interview. So we would encourage you to go back and watch it, but yeah. we're going to talk about some of the highlights. Yeah, like, the Las Vegas mayor was oh. interviewed by Anderson Cooper. Um it was like a 25-minute interview. It was a good chunk of time about um why she is advocating for just opening up everything in the state. Or is she advocating for that? It's hard to tell. She seems to be trying to say both at the same time. <laughs> so what are some of the things that she said? So one of my favorite was that she said, um, she specifically called out that the glory of free market capitalism would solve the pandemic. She was, uh, she was talking about wanting to open up um, casinos and saying that if a casino turned out to be not taking the proper precautions, the government shouldn't step in and, you know, uh, require them to take precautions. No, no, no. The casino would bear a bad, bad reputation and would be put out of business. So there you go. Yeah. If it becomes a hotbed, all of a sudden the free market corrects. And in the meantime, a bunch of people die. But, like, it's a small price to pay. Like, oh, yeah, my God. for just, God. you know, memorializing the glory of the free market. Does she understand that the invisible hand doesn't social distance? 
<laughs> Don't touch your face with it. <laughs> uh, and and she also basically advocated for using Las Vegas as a control group for the rest of the country. Yeah. Saying like, that like they should open up and that way we can really know what this would be like if. <laughs> yeah. And then Anderson Cooper kind of called her out for that. And then she kind of changed her tone and was like, oh yeah, well that's what I was saying. But like, then some experts told me that that probably wouldn't work. Then yeah, why'd you bring it, it up? No damn sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anderson Cooper called her out. He was, he, cause she was talking about like the control group's important because you know, if you have a controlled study, you have a, a placebo that goes to the control group. And he was like, um, the placebo is the group that gets screwed. <laughs> yeah. And also They're the ones that get no treatment. And also, the point of pandemic response is to take every proper precaution that you can make mm -hmm. in order to prevent the most number of deaths. Yeah. It's not to try to create some type of uh, laboratory that follows the scientific method in order to come to an absolute conclusion. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was really weird. She, she was, like, talking about, like, um, how we really won't know the facts until afterwards. And so like, and somehow that means we should open everything up. It's like in the face of uncertainty, what? you shouldn't just assume that like everything is fine. It's like, Oh, I don't see the lion outside my house. He must be gone. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, and then this one's great. She said, consider the fact that we have grown exponentially here over the past 40 years. It's been incredible. We've survived the West Nile, SARS, bird flu, uh, E. coli, swine flu, the Zika virus. I assume she meant Ebola, not E. coli. <laughs> and then that, and then that, right after that, was when she said, did the quotation about, "We'll find out the facts afterwards." Unfortunately, we all do better in hindsight. It's like, well, why don't you just try to do anything now? Okay, we survived <laughs> those diseases. They weren't as bad as the COVID-19 virus. Yeah, and we and we survived them and fixed them because of our response. Like if yeah, we had just we had done a nothing, good response. We had a solid worse. response. It wasn't because of the free market doing its thing. Yeah. That's not wanted, how we survived it. Yeah, we had a control group of like you know, for the Ebola outbreak and it was terrible. Thousands yeah. of people died. Luckily yeah. it didn't come to the United States because of our response. So yeah. like Anyway, she she's out there. Who is Be who's voting for this idiot? I like, know this was a how third did term. This, how this? How is that? How did that happen? How did <laughs> that know. happen? I I I've not been to Las Vegas. Um, I hope she's not truly representative of of the people of the lovely state of Nevada. But anyway, we know that she's crazy. She is definitely a no brainer. Congratulations to Carolyn Goodman, the mayor of Las Vegas, for being our asshat of, of the, the week. week. All right. And now our final segment will be discussing the uh, Joe Biden sexual assault allegation. Some updates on that. Uh, before we get started, we would just like to give a bit of a trigger warning. We are going to be addressing very sensitive topics regarding sexual assault. And if that's something that is going to trigger anything for you, that's going to be uh, extremely painful for you, we would, you know, please advise you to turn off the podcast. Um, 
that's part of the reason why we're having this be the last segment that we talk about today. So do what you need to do. Take care of yourself. You know, please be warned. Yeah. So as a reminder, um, Tara Reid came out um, a month or so ago with allegations of sexual assault um, against Joe Biden, uh, claiming that when she was a staffer um, for Joe Biden in the 1990s, um, she was bringing him a gym bag um, when in a secluded area he pushed her up against a wall um, and um, spread her legs with his knee and, and put his fingers inside of her um, without her consent. Um, the Biden campaign has claimed that this is not true and um, not factual at all, and there's nothing to support it. Um, as we've talked about before, there are a couple of pieces of evidence to support it, and new evidence came to light recently. Yeah. So Tara Reed's mother is unfortunately deceased right now, but apparently back in the 1990s, after Tara Reed had apparently told her mother about this, she called in to the Larry King show. And sure enough, there is a recording of uh, an unnamed woman who had called the Larry King show on August 11th, 1993. And she seems to be discussing an event in which her daughter had um, some type of inappropriate exchange with a senator. She said, quote, I'm wondering what a staffer would do besides go to the press in Washington. My daughter has just left there after working for a prominent senator and could not get through her problems at all. And the only thing she could have done was go to the press. She chose not to do it out of respect for him. Mm -hmm. And this call came from um, the town in which Tara Reed's mother lived. She, she said specifically that um, that was her mother's voice that she has heard in that recording um, since then. And yeah. that um, at the time she, she spoke to her mother and her mother told her that she would, that she had called into Larry King um, and that Tara Reed was upset at the time um, over the call. So at least according to Tara, um, you know, this was her mother on the phone. Yeah. Yeah. And then another quick, quotation larry king had asked in other words she had a story to tell but out of respect for the person she worked for she didn't tell it and the caller said that's true so mm -hmm. she is saying that this person has a story to tell about a prominent senator in washington now to be clear she didn't specifically mention sexual assault or harassment she was a little vague in talking about it and she didn't specifically mention her daughter's name and she did not specifically mention joe biden however this does fit with a lot of aspects of the narrative that we've been told so far. Um, mm -hmm. And it is absolutely a piece of evidence that does show that way back in the 90s, it does look like Tara had told other people about this sexual assault. Yeah. And when it comes to determining whether or not a sexual assault allegation is true or not, one of the things that people look at is, did this person tell other people at the time? Be and the reason why that's important is because at the time, she couldn't necessarily have known that she was, uh, that this was going to come back in like 30 years when that same person was running for president. Mm -hmm. So, so that's major evidence. 
Another thing that also recently happened, very recently, was um, her next door neighbor actually came out and told CNN that um, that Tara Reid had also told her at the time and described to her in detail uh, what had happened um, in uh, what Joe Biden had done to her. Mm-hmm. Um, her name was uh, Linda uh, LaClasse, and uh, she was in a CNN phone interview on uh, Monday. Mm-hmm. And um, and she uh, she verified a lot of the things that uh, Tara Reid had said and said that uh, Tara Reid had told her this at the time. Yeah. And then a person, another witness, has recently come forward um, saying that she worked with Tara in the late 1990s. And at the time, Tara had said um, to her that she had been sexually harassed by her former boss while she was in D.C. Um, and as a result of her voicing her concerns to her supervisor, she was let go. So at this point, we have those two witnesses. We have the recording of Tara's mom. Um, we have the um, the corroboration of her brother, who shared that um, in 1993, she told him that Biden was behaving inappropriately, and they had put his hand under her clothes. And um, there was another friend that came out saying that at the time, um, uh, Tara had told her about um, the sexual assault. Um, and then in 2008, so granted, a number of years later, uh, Reed told another friend about the assault as well. So at this point, we have Tara over multiple uh, years um, discussing this various aspects of this incident in various amounts of detail with multiple people. There does seem to be a lot of evidence that seems to corroborate the story. And again, we'll just to point out, we're not reporting on this because of some type of hidden agenda. This is not good for anybody. Yeah. Like it is terrible that it seems like this actually did happen. Um, it is terrible that, uh, that our best chance of replacing the dumbest and most dangerous president in the history of our country. It, it seems very likely committed a horrific sexual assault. Yeah. That is terrible. And that's bad for the Democratic Party. That's bad for, uh, I, I would say that that's bad for um, liberalism in general mm-hmm. in the United States. But we cannot just pretend that this doesn't exist. We yeah. have to address it. Now, we can still say that given the choice between Donald Trump, who has like a dozen sexual assault allegations and is destroying the country, and Joe Biden, we can still say that maybe Joe Biden is the lesser of two evils. In fact, the neighbor who um, who told... who. who corroborated uh the story she even said that she was planning on voting for biden anyway Mm -hmm. because we need to get rid of trump so clearly there was there was no political motivation there she's still voting for biden but this goes back to what we were talking about earlier which is that we can't let the people in the situation 
get in the way of the facts of the situation, get in the way of what we know and the evidence in the situation. Yeah. Now, um, the Biden campaign has, you know, released a statement from the beginning, not not on the most recent evidence, but they released a statement uh, when this uh, allegation first came to light saying that, you know, it was impossible and it didn't happen and that, you know, the voice of um, the alleger should be heard, um, but that Biden didn't do this. And um, CNN talked to uh, Biden's executive assistant from the 80s and 90s, Marion Baker. Um, and apparently, according to, to reports, this was the person that Tara said she approached about the inappropriate behavior by Biden in the 90s. Um, and Baker says that she had never witnessed or heard um, any issues of sexual misconduct um, about the vice president during her time working for him. Um, so, and, and, and the New York Times also attempted to reach out to uh, other staffers at the time um, to try to see if, if they had any knowledge or awareness of this incident, and they reportedly have not. Um, so just to, you know, lay the facts out on the table, those are the points coming from the other side. Um, it's it's a it's a challenging thing to parse fully because, you know, the Marion Baker um, testimony is probably the most interesting to me because if someone came to you with um, some kind of sexual harassment allegations, you'd think there would be you think you might remember or there would be a record of it. Um, but it it seems to me that like the testimony of multiple people um, hearing about this horrific incident would probably stick around. Um, I don't know, more brightly in their memory than potentially an executive assistant hearing about an in incidence of harassment and then trying to shuffle you through the proper channels. Um, that's like the providing the most confidence in all of the all of the testimony that's been given. Um, but just in the in the spirit of transparency, that's the information coming out of the Biden campaign. And one thing that uh, a report just came out, like a few minutes before we started this podcast, which was really disappointing to me, is that a prominent advocate for sexual assault survivors in the Senate has recently strongly came out uh, in defense of Joe Biden. And that is uh, New York Senator uh, Kirsten Gillibrand. So... Some of you, if you were paying, if you were paying attention during uh, the sexual assault allegations against Al Franken, you might remember that she was one of the first senators that called for uh, his resignation. And look, there were pictures of him sexually assaulting women. Like you can't deny that it happened. And I remember actually having a lot of respect for her for that because, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who he is and it doesn't matter who she is what matters is he did that and uh you cannot have people in places of power that have that little concern for the personal autonomy of other people and i actually thought she might be one of the few intellectually honest people in the senate because of that and she was on the front lines in the kavanaugh hearing defending Blase Ford. And she was recently asked about 
um, the allegation. And she said she stands with Vice President Biden. First, she said, quote, so when we say believe women, it's for this explicit intention of making sure there's a space for all women to come forward to speak their truth, to be heard. And in this allegation, that is what Tara Reid has done. She has come forward, she has spoken, and they have done an investigation in several outlets. Those investigations, Vice President Biden has called for himself. Vice President Biden has vehemently denied these allegations, and I support Vice President Biden. And then reporter followed up asking her if there was some type of contradiction in her advocacy against Kavanaugh and her not speaking out on uh, Tara Reid's behalf. And she said, no. And I stand by Vice President Biden. Look, she's no better than Republicans, than the Republicans in that regard. She's no better than the Republicans that defended Brett Kavanaugh and obstructed any attempts at uh, trying to find the truth. She's no better than any of them. And I'm not saying that there aren't other ways in which she is better than Republicans, but in this regard, sometimes Democrats can be just as bad as Republicans. There are yeah. prominent Democrats and prominent Republicans who do uh, commit sexual assault and harassment. And the measure as to whether or not you treat sexual assault seriously and whether or not you actually are a true advocate is not based on how, uh, how hard you advocate against people on the other side of the political aisle when they do it. It's how honest you are when people in your own party do it. And she demonstrated that with Al Franken, but she's not doing it right now. Mm -hmm. And that is disappointing that is disingenuous, and she is a shyster just like the rest of them. And, you know, to me, like, I don't feel like I have enough information to be sure, and I want that amount of information. You know, like, to me, like, the point that we are trying to drive home with Brett Kavanaugh is that we needed a full, um, to, to the gr the highest extent possible investigation into the allegations so that we'd, we could be as sure as we could be that a person we were about to appoint to the Supreme Court wasn't um, someone who had sexually assaulted somebody. And that is what we need here. We need, like, a full, deep, detailed understanding to the best of, like, our ability at this point, you know? And like the fact that there's more information coming out in support of um, Tara Reid's allegations and, and not more information um, adding to the Biden side is worrying. And that should be pushing us further in the direction of needing to like get as much information as possible. Um, Cause ultimately like we should, we deserve to be sure. So, Michael, I guess the question here is what happens now? Mm -hmm. So what should the Democratic Party do? And what should we do as advocates uh, moving forward? Now, we have said that when it comes to Biden versus Trump, there's, I mean, 
like it's not even a competition. Of course. But do we want it to be Biden versus Trump? Mm-hmm. And from the very beginning, I had concerns because of Biden's ment- mental uh, uh, decline. And now I have deep concerns because more the more evidence that comes out about this encounter, the more uh, concerning... It is that that is our candidate and that that person, that Joe Biden, could have the highest office in the land. Mm-hmm. So what do you think should happen from here? I mean, I wish I were more confident in, in like all the facts so that I would have a great answer. To me, the, the, I'm sure that the DNC has, has rules that go into effect if a candidate is like convicted of a crime or if a candidate proves themselves like unable to be an appropriate leader uh, uh, um, of the party. And so I, th- I think that we should expect the DNC to like to investigate. I don't know if they have that power, um, but presumably like they should be leading this charge to figure out whether those rules apply like whether we should be removing um biden from um his status as the nominee and you know i'd want to be sure about that right like i don't I i wouldn't want to like unnecessarily um like rock the boat to the extent that we end up with trump because again the choice between trump and biden is a clear one um but to the extent that we you know, can can craft a path where we don't have to make the choice between an alleged sexual predator and a sexual predator, we have to try to pursue that. And so the way you pursue that is by figuring out if he is a sexual predator or not, and then you can remove the alleged part. And if he is, to the, uh, you know, if we can confirm it to a reasonable suspicion, you know, remove him and I think then you'd have to default to whomever was, you know, the next, whoever's left in the primary as like, you know, the person that we would have to default to. Yeah. Which in this case would be Bernie Sanders Mm -hmm. or at least, I mean, he's not technically running, but um, he is still on the ballot and he does have the second most delegates. Yeah. So, so Tulsi Gabbard or Bernie Sanders could either be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And this um, is really not a play for us to try to like keep pushing for Bernie. Like, yeah, it, it is not a like I have zero interest in trying to like turn the primary back to Bernie. Yeah, but I have a ton of interest in trying to figure out exactly who we'd be electing. Yeah. So, and, and honestly, I know it would be undemocratic, and I really, I really kind of feel dirty saying this, but. I honestly think that if they were to choose someone else, some other establishment person to run instead of Joe Biden, that would be better than having Joe Biden at this point. With the evidence that we have, um, it would be better for them to choose someone else. Now, it would piss off a lot of Bernie supporters. And I mean, it would piss me off too. Yeah. If they decided to go for some other random person, but 
that would honestly be better for the Democratic Party than um, at this point to 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 run an alleged sexual predator against an admitted sexual predator. Yeah, I'd be really worried about just like substituting another person in based on their policy. Like, I I, th- I feel like that would be so damaging to like the structure of the party and like that candidate would be so um it would be so hazy whether they had any kind yeah. of support or mandate to to be the nominee um i feel like it would just be a really difficult line to draw now again if it's if it's a weird choice between um you know an alleged sexual predator and some other moderate, like maybe that's a choice we'd want to make, but I'd want to be really sure. Yeah. And look, I say that because I have very little faith in the DNC to do the right thing in that situation, to give it to the person in second. I have very little faith in them. DNC, prove me wrong. Yeah. I would love to be proven wrong. And now it's time for us to end our show on a little bit of a high note. So, Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight this week is the fact that um, this is going to be uh, my last week of my community college classes. Now, I love my community college classes, and I love my community college students, um, but it has definitely been a lot, and it will be nice to get those grades in. So uh, Thursday will be the last time we meet in class, and then uh, finals week is next week, um, which means that after this week, uh, my schedule is going to be a little bit more uh, free for a little bit. I'll get a little bit of a break, so um, that, that'll be very nice. Plenty of time to stay inside and do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yep. What about you, Michael? Well, um, for me... My highlight is probably so so since the beginning of quarantine I have been growing out my beard. Um, and I grew it, it got pretty long for me like I I don't grow a very fast beard. But this past weekend I shaved off the beard part and now I just have a majestic mustache um which you know is a lifelong dream come true. So really that's probably my highlight. So you know if you if you're interested in seeing the mustache um yeah, just like shout out to our, our Perspectrum um, page on Facebook, uh, and uh, maybe I'll post a picture, you know, of the, yeah. the majestic mustache. Majestic is certainly a word that could be used to describe it. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that you think that could be used to describe it. That's uh, I mean, theoretically, there's, a, there's an alternate reality in which that could be utilized as a potential word, as a, and a, a potential adjective to describe said mustache. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, thank you so much for listening to the Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. <laughs>